The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He's constantly looking for new ways to be able to not only make them, you know, angry and angsty about the stuff, to ramp up the level of anxiety so Tucker can offer you your, your, your daily dose of, of xenophobia every night and thus keep his viewers, but also to be able to provide new and interesting ways of getting that message across, that there's something wrong with America fundamentally, right? And, and appealing to Hungary and standing it up as this model of what a country could be like is one way of doing that. Right, one way of being like, look, look, guys, here's what's happening. Here's what things would be like if it wasn't for the corrupt elites running your country. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 18th, 2021. Earlier this month, Tucker Carlson, whose nightly news show on Fox has become the most popular show in U.S. cable news history, traveled to Budapest to record a special version of his show. The centerpiece of his visit was an interview with Hungary's authoritarian leader, Viktor Orban. But far from criticizing Orban or questioning him on Hungary's increasing move away from liberal democracy, Carlson was all compliments, praising the fence that Hungary has built along its border and allowing Orban to lash out against his critics at home and abroad. Carlson is not the only one with kind words for Hungary's would-be strongman. In the past months, an increasing number of conservative media and intellectual elites have praised Hungary as well as earlier models like Portugal under the post-World War II right-wing dictator Antonio Salazar, for what they view as its willingness to use state power to fight for conservative social, cultural, and religious values. To help me understand what this embrace of foreign authoritarianism means for the American conservative movement, I spoke with Zach Beecham, a senior correspondent at Vox, who's written about the rights embrace of Orbanism and what it means for the future of American democracy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 18th. Zach Beecham on the American rights embrace of the Hungarian regime of Viktor Orban. Zach, thanks so much for joining, and let's get right into it. So what elements on the American right are suddenly fans of Hungary, and, and why? And let's start in particular with Tucker Carlson's now notorious, um, at least in some quarters, uh, trip to Budapest. Yeah, Tucker, in this case, and, and in a lot of different ways, represents the, the fusing of two different trends on the fringe of the conservative movement, both of which have real reasons to admire the authoritarian regime in Hungary, right? So on the one hand, you have the the hardline, hardcore nationalists, right? People who 
are really their principal grievance is with mass immigration and with the idea that the United States is losing its national character and sense of national cohesion as a result of uh, people who are, quote unquote, not like us. I'm not saying that because any particular person said that, but because they won't actually spell out what that euphemism is supposed to refer to. But that that it's pretty clear what that kind of language means. right? Anyway, that sort of person, you see it on Tucker's show every night, really admires the way that Orban has cut off Hungary from immigration into the EU and stood up, in their view, against the EU wanting to open its borders to refugees, in particular during the 2015 refugee crisis. And then on the other hand, you have the sort of hardline religious types on the right who see themselves as the losers in the culture war, the people whose worldview was really defined by, in large part, the defeat in the culture war over same-sex marriage. Uh, Here you have people like Rod Dreher, who is an influential writer on the right, who is currently in Budapest on a fellowship at a government-sponsored think tank, right? So he's he's, basically the government is paying him to write pro-Hungary takes. Uh, He would, you know, he seems to have come by this view on his own, but, you know, then he's accepted Hungarian government money and, according to him, played a very important role in brokering Tucker Carlson's visit. So he helped encourage Tucker to come. And now for this kind of, of conservative, they, their worldview is defined by what they see as increasing liberal and left persecution in the United States, that there is no more space for what they see as a traditional Christian identity in life in the way the United States is currently constituted. So they need to fight back in their view against this liberal cultural behemoth. Right now, you might say Donald Trump just controlled the U.S. government. Republicans had a trifecta not that long ago. They still control the Supreme Court. Like, what are you guys talking about? But in their view, it's it's the cultural hegemony of the left in places like Hollywood and in academia and the media that create a, a monoculture that pushes politics inevitably in the direction of left-wing social views and crushes out space for the right and conservative subcultures to be able to live their own life and to create their own little societies inside broader America. And so a lot of them have concluded the only thing you can do about this is fight back, is to use the power of the state, where they still have the ability to access power occasionally, as evidenced by the Supreme Court and Trump and the Republican trifecta in 2016 and so on, uh, against the liberal cultural juggernaut. And Orban, in their view, is doing that through things like forcing Central European University out of the country, which is a major liberal arts school that was funded by George Soros. Then you can see other examples, right, like banning the teaching of gender studies at accredited universities or making it illegal to broadcast certain kinds of programming related to same-sex or transgender identities outside the hours of you know, like 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. or something like that, that may be a little bit off on the exact time frame, but it's it's a, you have to play it at night so kids won't see it, right? All of these different things have, have created a sense that Orban is the guy who fights and he wins for us. That's, that's their worldview. And those two different factions on the right, both of which Tucker partakes in, though the immigration stuff is more defining for him, have, have come together to kneel at the altar of Viktor Orban and, and the Hungarian state. I want to focus this conversation on what's happening in America, in particular on the American right. But I, I do think it's worth spending a little more time on what's happening in Hungary to provide that 
kind of context. So, you know, you, you've already mentioned a couple of things that, that Orban has done, but can, can you zoom out and just give us a little bit more historical context for what's happened over the you know decade-long rule of, of Viktor Orban? Um, and because my, my, my sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that um, one thing that's so appealing or so notable about uh, Hungary for those on the, on the right uh, that are interested in it is that Hungary actually very much made a move from liberal democracy to what it now calls illiberal democracy over, over the last 10 years. So it's more than just an authoritarian regime. It's one that in the uh, minds of those on the right made that transition from liberal democracy or what they might think of as more as you know leftist democracy to illiberal democracy. And so I was hoping you could sort of provide a little context into, into how that how that went. Yeah. 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 The key move on the right right now in the US is to say, do this kind of uncomfortable two-step, which is first, Hungary is not an authoritarian state, and how dare you accuse it of doing it. And second, Hungary is impressive because it has managed to use the power of the state against the left to crush their cultural power. Now, you wonder how those two things exist at the same time without there being significant amounts of cognitive dissonance. There are significant amounts of <laughs> cognitive dissonance. Uh, but I guess I'll back up and, and answer your question initially about like what happened with Hungary. So this is really intimately bound up with Viktor Orban as a person, right? Orban, during communist control of Hungary, was actually a pro-democracy dissident. He was funded to study abroad in the UK by, of all people, George Soros, who is now his like biggest enemy. Soros, by the way, is the Hungarian pronunciation of Soros. That's why I'm saying it that way. Not, I, I'm not. I don't. Haven't just like developed a lisp randomly in this conversation. So, so, so Orban was this pro-democracy demonstrator, and he won the premiership in the '90s initially, but then lost in in a free election. And now, you know, the, that all seemed like Hungarian democracy was functioning. And in fact, at the time, a lot of commentators and democracy experts saw Hungary as a, as a great example of a transition from communism to democracy that had succeeded. But Orban decided after losing this election that the problem wasn't his policies, it wasn't the way that he had approached governing, but it was that society had been arranged against him. And that you know, in particular, he blamed the media, which he claimed was controlled by the opposition uh, or too favorable to the opposition for his defeat, and that he needed to create, you know, sort of a, a new media environment in order to take control of Hungary. And so when he was out of power from 2002 to 2010, he developed an increasingly authoritarian and right-wing worldview. And I separated those two things out deliberately because it was both authoritarian and socially conservative, but not necessarily that those were the same thing. They have fused in particular ways during his time in power. But when he was elected in 2010, basically as a result of corruption scandals on the part of the ruling party and a generalized anti-incumbent sentiment uh, after the financial crisis, he won with, with two-thirds of the parliament, over two-thirds of the parliament, which is enough to unilaterally amend the constitution. And so he had basically unchecked power through perfectly legitimate means at this point, and then went about rewriting the rules of the game in order to ensure that he would never lose power again through free and fair elections. And the way that he did that is very, very subtle. Orban is a lawyer by training, and most of his inner circle are lawyers, or at least they were when he was coming up. And so they figured out ways to make it seem as if the democratic system that Hungary had created after the fall of communism was still in place. In reality, 
the democratic system had been wiped away through these changes. Over the course of time, it didn't happen immediately, but he started acting very, very swiftly. And there are a variety of different means that he used, right? Because it's not stuffing ballots, right? It's not the like ridiculous Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad type election where they win with 99.5% of the vote in an obviously fraudulent affair, right? That no one takes seriously. No, this is very, very tricky and very subtle. It's things like, like gerrymandering, like using government advertising dollars, which are an extremely significant form of revenue for Hungarian media to pressure organizations to sell either to the government itself or to government-friendly oligarchs. It involves taking control of the constitutional court. So you basically can't have your legislation overturned through court means or anything you do to raid the elections. It means taking staffing the electoral administration with your allies. It means turning the allegedly neutral government broadcasting and, and government advertising systems into propaganda machines. And all of these different ways that make it such that it's functionally impossible for the Hungarian public to develop an accurate sense of what the government is doing, or even a remotely accurate one. And even if they do and are upset with the government, which many of them are, things like gerrymandering and rewriting electoral rules so the government has a massive leg up in terms of campaign funding, right? So Fidesz, his party, gets through the way they've structured things much, much, much more money than the opposition does, right? And so you make it so that the rules are so unfair that it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, something we'll see in next year's election, uh, for the opposition to win. So that's the kind of authoritarianism we have in, in Hungary. The term for it is competitive authoritarianism. That's what political scientists call this kind of system. Uh, and it means a system where elections still matter, right? The outcome is still important. For instance, there, the Budapest mayoral race, for example, that was recent, was highly significant. And there was a, a notable defeat for the government who elevated an anti-government voice to the national stage. Those elections do still matter in Hungary, but they're so unfair that the contest can't meaningfully be described as a democratic one. Is there historical precedent for, coming back to, to America now, is there historical precedent for folks on the American right to, to look outside the country for, for models, especially you know not particularly democratic ones? And I, I ask this because obviously we saw something like this very much on the left during the early years of the Cold War, when many on the, the far left and, and even some in the kind of more center left looked to the Soviet Union as a real alternative possibility to Western capitalism. So has there ever been something like that on the right, or is this really kind of unprecedented in American political history? No, it's not at all unprecedented, right? It's This is actually pretty common that you have this kind of authoritarian envy on the part of various different factions in the US. But it's not that they are envious precisely of the authoritarianism. That is sometimes what's happening. But it's that they see something, an unfinished ideological project here at home that's being accomplished abroad. And this is a really an all sides of the political spectrum type thing, right? And there are benign forms of it too, right? There, there's nothing wrong with Bernie Sanders looking at Sweden and saying, this is a country that does things better. Or, you know, someone in a healthcare debate pointing to Canada and saying, look at the single-payer healthcare system. It's so much better than the American one in a variety of different ways, right? Looking for models abroad is not in inherently flawed. But what happens, uh, especially, I think, on the fringes of the political spectrum uh, or among intellectuals who have a really, really strong affection for particular ideological projects, is that they end up looking at a foreign model 
that is authoritarian but represents what they see as a pure or unfettered version of their own ideology and constructing apologetics to make it seem like they're not actually as authoritarian as they seem. Right, so you get arguments, as you mentioned, on the left and from some journalists back in the pre-Cold War era and during the Cold War about how the Soviet Union was the future of the world and it was showing everybody how things can be done and what a life without capitalism looks like. Right, You've seen people on the left admire Maoist China in the early days or, or downplay the Cultural Revolution or Pol Pot's genocide, right? And on the right, you know, the, they're the infamous Nazi apologists from the 1930s, you know, someone like Charles Lindbergh and the, you know, the America First organization, which was dedicated ostensibly to keeping America out of World War II and out of European politics, but really in large part was about sympathizing with the Nazi regime and seeing it as, if not something that Americans should exactly imitate as, as a government that, you know, maybe they, they got some things right, right? So, so there's that. There's admiration for Francisco Franco and Antonio Salazar, who are the Spanish and Portuguese dictators, the last fascists in Europe after World War II. And you, there, there are various people on the right who have argued that they were models because they crushed the left in their countries. And you've seen this in the American conservative movement. You've seen defenses of the apartheid regime in South Africa. Again, not exactly as a model for the US, but you have seen defenses of uh, of that system as one that wasn't as oppressive as you might think, and despite the obvious racial segregation on display, because they embodied, uh, you know, a, a sort of rightist ethos of the of the correct people controlling government. There's no way to talk about this without that particular example, without foregrounding the racism that was involved in in admiration for apartheid South Africa, or at least a willingness to defend it. Similarly, with Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. It's a, it's a perennial strain of political thinking, of whitewashing and sanitizing and admiring authoritarian regimes abroad, right? You know, more contemporary leftist examples, Cuba and Venezuela. Venezuela under Chavez was seen as a leftist dream, you know, it was held up as a model for how socialism could succeed. And then when Chavez's policies destroyed the Venezuelan economy and gave us the more nakedly repressive regime of Maduro, it's that kind of defense sort of vanished, right? It it disappeared because that was disproven by reality. But what's disturbing about the Hungarian case, to me anyway, is that there is ample evidence that Orban is failing to deliver on all sorts of different metrics. But because he is succeeding at culture war and because he is so boldly, in the view of the right, standing against the left, they're okay or at least willing to overlook what he's doing, which in some ways ape what the Republican Party is doing in the United States at a much more inchoate and, and unfinished level. So I, I want to take this idea of, of culture war in Hungary and then try to situate that into kind of a theory of, of what's happened to the Republican Party, and I'm curious your thoughts on it. So my understanding of kind of post-war Republican Party history is that it's this for decades, somewhat uneasy partnership between three pretty distinct groups that don't have that much to do with each other, but do end up allying out of political convenience. So you have the anti-communists, whose priority is anti-communism. You have the libertarians, whose priority is shrinking government, both in terms of economic regulation, but also increasing social freedoms. And then you have the 
sort of social conservative slash nationalist slash Christian right that view America as, you know, fundamentally a, a white Christian kind of European origin nation. And, you know, obviously the anti-communist element of this falls away after the Soviet Union falls. It, it lives on a little bit as neoconservatism, um, but that doesn't end particularly well, um, as we've seen with the wars in Iraq and, and now um, Afghanistan. Libertarianism falls away kind of with the end of Paul Ryan as speaker um, and Donald Trump, who is many things, but deeply not a libertarian right. economic policy. Um, and so sort of all you have left is this third strand, this kind of social, conservative, religious, ethno-nationalist strand. And now the Republican Party is actually much purer in its ideology. It actually stands for something kind of coherent. And, and so I, I wonder, you know, do, you, do you think that's part of the reason why there is this resurgent interest in a model like Hungary, which also, again, does not stand for anti-communism, does not stand for libertarianism, but stands for a kind of, you know, Hungarian version of ethno-nationalism. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting. What you're describing is like the classic theory of movement conservatism called fusionism, articulated by Frank Meyer most prominently and intellectual affiliated with National Review. The thing about fusionism as a doctrine is that it described the right at the elite level relatively well. What it didn't do so well is describe the actual base of support for the conservative movement, right? Which after Nixon and Reagan, it became especially clear that the foundations of the movement was the backlash to civil rights, right? And that tied a lot of these different groups together politically. Anti-communism tied the elites together, right? You had the foreign policy hawks who, for obvious reasons, hated the communists, as you say. They could just be described as anti-communists fairly accurately. The libertarians hated socialist economics, and the social conservatives despised the godless atheism that defined the Soviet model. And so they bound together in this, this generalized disgust for what they took to be the leftist threat to society. At the base level, obviously, people disliked communism, right? The fear of socialism is still a potent force in American politics today. But they were really attracted to this new conservative movement by virtue of the ways in which it allowed for resistance to the post-civil rights order, right? So a lot of the religious right was activated, for example, during a fight over desegregating private schools. And so much of this, of what happened right now, is bound up in these, these socio-cultural fears about losing America and, and changes to the country after the sort of one-two punch of the victory of the civil rights movement and the changes to immigration law in 1965 that allowed for much, much greater numbers of non-white immigrants to enter the United States, especially Latino immigrants. And this this fear of cultural change was always the subtext of conservative politics, at times openly articulated. But a lot of people were afraid of making it the text because in this, the new moral order that had come about after civil rights, you weren't supposed to openly be racist. You needed to be much more subtle about it if you didn't want to be branded as a defender of an order that, that most people had agreed had been discredited in the 1960s. And so there, there were a whole set of dog whistles and different kinds of language that one could use to appeal to these people, you know, the, the real hardcore, the racially motivated base 
in the GOP that was uh, turning into its core supporters, given the way that it had oriented itself under Goldwater, Nixon, and Reagan. And that changed over the course of time sort of disturbingly into becoming more open, right? And that, that was Trump's key innovation. It's like if you say the racist stuff out loud, then you're more likely to win than the people who try to, in a primary, than the people who try to hide it behind veiled language and dog whistles and so on. And that, I think, plays a role in why Hungary has become an admired model, because the Hungarian government is not at all shy about saying, we're doing this because we believe that Hungary should be for the Hungarians, right? It's it's a Christian society. It's a European society. And we can't, you know, one Steve King, a, a former House member, a Republican who admires Orban, said we can't replace ourselves uh, with other people's babies. That's sort of his language. And it's Orban's language, too, right, that you need to have more Hungarians in the world. And this kind of ethno-nationalism, which has always been a really central motivating part of the Republican Party, focused more on race than immigration, but increasingly immigration over the course of time after the policy change in the 60s, it has come to be a more open and vibrant part of the Republican intellectual sphere in a way that it wasn't in the 1990s when you had the paleoconservatives and Pat Buchanan, but they were, you know, considered to be outcasts by many in polite Republican society uh, as time went on, right? And especially, you know, during the George W. Bush administration. That that change in the intellectual scene, that sort of the alignment of the intellectuals more openly with what the political base of the movement was, has, I think, paved the way for Hungary worship on the right. I don't pretend to be a, a expert on Hungarian demographics, but I'm assuming that you know Hungary is a fairly small country. It's 10 million people. You know, I'm assuming that that whatever their demographic goals are in terms of ethnic Hungarianness, there are some levers they can pull and some you know dials they can turn, and they can they can try to do whatever it is they want to do to you know keep quote unquote keep Hungary for the Hungarians. Um, but it does seem that that is not possible in the United States. You know, the, the demographic inertia and the demographic trends are what they are. You know, the census data just came out. It's pretty clear that America is fast moving into a even more durably multiracial country than it has been previously. The the white population is is going to become, I mean, obviously we'll stay at plurality for the foreseeable future, but it is about to, if not already, have become a, a minority ethnic group. And so it, it does seem that this opens up a, a quite disturbing possibility for the right, or at least that part of the right that is into this sort of ethnic nationalism, you know, not just to look to foreign models like Hungary for tips, right? And as you pointed out, that's, there's nothing wrong with looking to foreign examples for, for ideas, but, but denying that America in its current form even could have can be saved at all. And in, in other writing, you've written about what you could have provocatively, but I think in many ways quite accurately called the anti-American right which is kind of a shocking term in part because the right tends to pride itself on a deep and almost reflexive pro-Americanness. Um, and so I was hoping you could sort of talk about how what we're seeing on the right goes beyond just looking to foreign models to buttress Americanness, but in some ways looks to foreign models because parts of the right have given up on America as they understand it to be today and, and the direction in which it's moving. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The parallel with Hungary there is more revealing than you might think. 
as much as Orban talks about trying to fix the Hungarian birth rate and right, this really naked ethno-national language, they're not especially good at it. You know, they've all these policy levers, like trying to provide incentives for women to stay at home and have more children. But Hungary is losing a lot of people. And part of the reason that that's happening is a lot of young Hungarians, you know, really Hungarians in Orban's Hungarian sense, right? They don't want to live under this kind of government. They leave, they emigrate to a place that has a more vibrant economy where you get paid more, where you're not in trouble or threatened if you do something that the government doesn't like, right? I, I met in Hungary a businessman who basically was a, was on the verge of losing his company thanks to government threats, right? They just wanted it as a vehicle for getting more EU subsidies and funneling it to themselves corruptly. The entire economy has been bent to the service of enriching the elite there. And so it's just – it's not a model if you want to really see how to create a natalist society. They've done some things in that direction, but they're more surface level than anything else. Now, the, the key difference is that there just hasn't been mass immigration to Hungary, right? Like there's there's no real threat of Hungary losing its Hungarian ethnic status because most people aren't moving there. They're, the immigrant population there is tiny in, in relative terms, right? It's It's just – it's all ginned up. And in some ways, I think that's a really good point of comparison to the U.S. here, right? The There is not only nothing that can be done to stop ethnic change inside the United States, there's little evidence that it's erasing any core feature of Americanness unless you define that in ethno-national terms, right? If If it is the case that you think to be American means to descend from previous generations of Americans or less charitably previous generations of white Americans, which is often the subtext here, then yeah, you're going to see immigration as a massive threat. But right now, any metric of assimilation that you want to use to American norms, right? Look at the way that Latino immigrants have done and, and folded into the US and even politically, right? Many have become quite politically conservative or were attracted to the Trump model as we saw in the last election. And there's just a lot more diversity in, well, a more diverse society than these these doomsayers want you to think, or specifically want any any white listeners to think, to be threatened by this sort of person. And I think that submerged ethno-nationalism, or not so submerged at times, in the case of people like Trump and Carlson, who often say the quiet part out loud, it really ends up turning on the country because they have a, an idealized vision of what the country looks like that is basically stuck in 1950. And when you have this particularized image of who populates the country and what it looks like in terms of who lives where and who marries whom and what languages are spoken and what foods are uh, uh, what foods are, are served at the diner down the street, Right, you're going to be constantly disappointed by the reality of the United States. And you're going to start to turn on this country that is not fitting the the explanations that you give yourself as to why you love it. And that's why I use this term, the anti-American right, because this hyper-patriotism, we love America so much, we hate to see what's happening to it, just turns into we hate what it's become. That language becomes more mainstream, and it also leads one to look for models of renewal abroad. And as much as Hungary isn't actually effective or isn't a good parallel for the United States in any number of different ways, it helps satisfy this, this almost psychic craving 
for something that could bring us back to the idealized time when America was America again. And look, an an incredibly white European society that has an insular nationalism as its dominant ideological force. Look, that's very appealing for people who have this fake vision of America. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We started this conversation by focusing on two institutions on the right um, and, and their role in this new flirtation with with Hungary and, and kind of other authoritarian models, both present and future. And these institutions, this could roughly categorize them as the media and the intellectual class. And I, I want to dig into both of these a little bit. So let's start with the media and let's talk about Fox News in particular, both because that is, of course, where Tucker Carlson is employed, uh, and and also because it is arguably the the single most important media institution on the right. Right now, you know, I, I think those of us in the center or those on the left will think of Fox News as a quite conservative institution, quite conservative outlet. But there are actually far more conservative and far more extreme TV networks. Um, places like Newsmax, places like OANN that are increasingly um, competing with Fox News that are increasingly pulling Fox's sort of most diehard viewers. And Fox seems to have reacted with something like a, you know, no enemies on the right kind of strategy. And so how much should we view, or do you think, how much do we, how much do you, do you view this, you know, Tucker Carlson move and, and related things as a, a attempt by Fox to appeal to this right wing of its own viewership to avoid losing those viewers to the more right wing, you know, to the even more right wing media institutions? And if so, should we expect a kind of vicious circle where, you know, all of these groups try to attract the most hardcore partisans by increasing the extremism of, of their coverage and of their positions? So in other words, you know, whatever else this is, how much is this just a media story? So I, I would almost think of it in opposite terms, right? This isn't a reaction to the right, but to the left on the part of Carlson, right? And that's sort of in two ways, right? Like one is that a lot of Carlson's base believes, and this is why they like him so much, that the, they're losing the country. It's all going to hell. The wrong people are coming in. Everything is terrible and the left dominates everything and they need to be told and galvanized against that specter all the time. So he's constantly looking for new ways to be able to not only make them, you know, angry and angsty about the stuff to ramp up the level of anxiety so Tucker can offer you your your, your daily dose of, of xenophobia every night, 
and thus keep his viewers, but also to be able to provide new and interesting ways of getting that message across, that there's something wrong with America fundamentally, right? And, and appealing to Hungary and standing it up as this model of what a country could be like is one way of doing that, right? One way of being like, look, look, guys, here's what's happening. Here's what things would be like if it wasn't for the corrupt elites running your country. But isn't Tucker doing that in part because he's trying to defend his right flank from Again, places like Newsmax or OANN or, you know, whatever Steve Bannon's going to cook up next. You know, I, I don't get that sense. I think that this that plays more into the, the second way in which he wants to bait the left here, or at least bait the left in a roundabout way that may accomplish what you're talking about. But I don't know if that's the strategic design, which is that he he wins by trolling, right? A lot of what and the way that Tucker Carlson operates is to make people mad at him and then say they're trying to silence me or you know i'm the truth teller and look how look at how all the right people are mad at me you know there's something he said this pretty much explicitly in his interview with orban where he said and this isn't a direct quote but it's close enough it's like well all the right people hate you right well well yeah that's how his worldview operates and by getting all these condemnations from from people like me, unfortunately, I don't know how to not play into this game, right? It helps galvanize attention for Tucker. It helps cement in the eyes of his audience that he's the person that is standing up to the bad people who control society. And that means implicitly, like, you shouldn't be watching OAN or Newsmax or something because they don't galvanize or garner the same reaction, from the left. But it's not as though those those outlets were winning a lot of viewers with Viktor Orban praise, right? Like before this Carlson thing, Orban admiration was largely confined to Republican intellectual circles. The vast majority of GOP primary voters or cable news watchers had no idea who Viktor Orban was, right? And so the reason for doing this isn't to like take over the mantle of Orban's chief apologist in the United States, or I'm, I'm the pro-Hungarian guy because being pro-Hungarian has been such an important marker on the right. It's to define pro-Hungarianness as something that is part of the right-wing value and culture set and something that helps cement Tucker Carlson as the leader of a particular version of the right by trolling the left and by raising his own prominence. So if the right way to then understand the role of Tucker Carlson and kind of the mass conservative media is as popularizing this intellectual movement on the right. Let's let's talk a little bit about that intellectual movement. So there does seem to be over the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, increasing interest on the intellectual right for a variety of approaches that kind of deviate from the liberal consensus and, and especially, I think, and most markedly deviate from the um, libertarianism and small government ideology that has generally been really dominant on the right, you know, whether it's right-wing economics or right-wing legal thought. And, and this new approach has a bunch of names, you know, post-liberalism, integralism, common good constitutionalism. We're, we're clearly still trying to, you know, figure out what the kind of official title is going to be uh, for this for this movement. But, uh, you know, you have people like Rod Dreher, who you mentioned earlier um, in, in our conversation. You have outlets like American Greatness or the Claremont Review of, of Books. So you, you do have this ecosystem, this increasing institutionalization of this of this movement. And I was hoping you could just give an overview of, you know, to the extent that there is a well-developed set of theoretical propositions or commitments or assumptions, you know, what are they? And, and in particular, you know, how do they deviate from, again, the kind of libertarian small government 
approach that that at least I have always understood to be kind of the central plank of conservative thought, but that now seems to be far less appealing to many conservatives. Yeah, it's a it's a really difficult and interesting question, right? Because you can't pinpoint just one dominant idea. As you said, you have people who want to integralists who want to replace the US state with what is functionally speaking for all intents and purposes that they deny this language, a Catholic theocracy, right, which is really impossible to imagine in a country that is not dominantly Catholic to put it mildly. You know, and that, but that's not that's just one of many different strains, right? And, and that particular vision is very limited and has no chance of appealing to a large number of people. But the arguments that underpin and connect the integralists with other kinds of, of post liberals, which I think is sort of the broad term that is useful here, relate to this idea of state power that you were referring to. And I think the best way to describe this consensus position is that the left has won culturally. And that means we need to win politically, right? So when progressives control Hollywood, when they control the media, when they control academia, when the very population of the United States is changing to one that is, generally speaking, more favorable to left-wing ideas, in the long run, any conservative project is doomed, absent some kind of deeper and more fundamental change. And so the goals of merely pursuing prosperity through free market politics aren't enough if we want to save the country from what's coming. And so that means a variety of different things, right, in terms of where policy should go in different directions. And again, I don't want to attribute specific ideas to specific factions because uh, I run the risk of overgeneralizing here, right? They're post-liberals are internally heterogeneous. They're different types, right? They're integralists. There's there are monarchists like Curtis Yarvin, who was recently featured on a, a podcast by the Claremont Institute, uh, like really outright monarchists, right? And he's Yarvin himself is broadly affiliated with Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley venture capitalist, who is a post-liberal of various different kinds, as is J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, who used to work for Thiel. So many different factions running here. But the, the general sense, right, the things that connect most of their different politics together are a belief that the state can be used to enforce traditional conservative values. And that mean, that can be done through economic regulation, breaking up big tech, which they see as captured by liberals and suppressing conservative thought and being like the key enforcers of what they would call like the of woke hegemony or woke oppression. That That's really important. So antitrust plays some role in this. Uh, and then you've got Josh Hawley in the Senate who really embodies this particular strain of right-wing thinking. You have uh, people who want to outlaw pornography. I heard Vance, for example, deliver a speech about the evils of pornography and the need to you know, use the state to suppress it. Uh, it's an old conservative theme, but one that's making a comeback in this world. You have the, the Hungary admiration is obviously part of this, right, because of their war on left-wing cultural influence. And, and you also have a sort of subcurrent that's becoming more and more prominent in here, uh, which the integralists embodied, but again is spreading, of, of outright authoritarianism. The idea that the left is so powerful that we need to use the political system to suppress them. And we need to not just win culture war battles, but create a situation where they can't win power anymore so we can implement our agenda. Uh, and that's where you get dictator and authoritarian envy in, in more naked and disturbing terms. 
I'm trying to put myself in the position of, of someone who is at least sort of sympathetic to this view on the right and, and imagining how they would react to the kind of conversation we've had so far. And it strikes me that one thing that they might say is that, you know, this conversation has exposed a real blind spot and one might say hypocrisy on the left, that this post-liberalism is not unique to the right. And in fact, that it is uh, quite prominent, though obviously in service of very different political goals on certain parts of the, the left. So putting aside the flirtations that you know you mentioned earlier in the conversation that some on the left have had with places like Cuba or Venezuela, you know, even closer to home, there are many on the left that will, you know, criticize, you know, those of their you know, f- fellow left-wingers for the censoriousness or the kind of heavy-handedness of the, um, you know, at least some parts of the social justice movement, right? So, you know, if you read folks like Ibrahim Kendi um, and some of their more extreme proposals for a you know, constitutional amendment uh, for you know, anti-racism or a department of anti-racism, that would also give the government uh, enormous power to implement a certain view of the common good in the way that uh, might in some ways trample or at least infringe on uh, individual rights. So, you know, we've been talking about this conversation as if it's a left-right issue, but, you know, one might say, one might argue or one might suggest that really there are, are three groups in American society today, that there is a, a right-wing that is post-liberal, there is a left-wing that is equally post-liberal, though in the service of, of different substantive goals and goals that we may view as better in, in some way, more ethical, more moral. And then there is a center that is the kind of liberal center that is actually being hounded from, from both sides. Now, do you think that is a fair, if not justification for the authoritarian turn on the right, at least a, a fair uh, way of putting it into perspective? Or is there something just different? Is it, is it a false equivalence to say that sort of anything on the left, even the excesses, that I think many people see, that they're in any way equivalent to what is happening in the far reaches of the right. Yeah, I think, well, I think a few things about that, right? So first, I think that you're accurately describing the mindset of, of a lot of these people, right? There is a real sense that, you know, in the the Trump era and, and recently that and what we what we used to call political correctness, wokeness, whatever, is so extreme that it constitutes an existential threat to a free society and justifies more naked oppression, right? That as Dreyer put it in a recent column, right, that he doesn't think there is a liberal future for the United States. There's uh, left wing liberalism and right wing liberalism, and so you basically just have to choose one or the other, and that that really is the worldview. So I don't want to jump down your throat and say that, that that's not accurate. I think it's in a really important way of describing it. I do think it's a false equivalence. And I also think it's not actually what's driving this kind of flirtation on the right. It is what some people say, and I believe what some people believe. But, you know, if you look at the rise of right-wing illiberalism, right, as a political movement. And a lot of these intellectuals are laggards, right? They're not leading indicators, as we've sort of implicitly assumed in this conversation, but people who have adjusted themselves to a post-Trump reality. Trump came out of nowhere. A lot of people turned around on Trump, who were initial Trump critics, and became boosters when it became clear that he won power and have redefined their worldview around one that is sympathetic or coterminous with Trumpism, right? And like, 
if you trace this backlash and the increasing rise of illiberalism on the right, a lot of it starts with Obergefell, the Supreme Court ruling that that argued that it was unconstitutional to prohibit same-sex marriage, right? That was what they saw as a, a defeat in the culture war. Now, for a lot of us, that was a vindication of liberalism's promises, right? Its core ideal that all people should be treated with equal respect and be free to pursue their own vision of the good life, independent of what the state thinks they should do. But that's what made a lot of the right feel so persecuted, right? And similarly, you see the more naked embrace of authoritarianism, not after um, the George Floyd protests, but after Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election and with the rise of, of conspiracy theories about how American democracy uh, you know, has been corrupted by the left and ballots were stuffed and so on. Whatever some of these people say, if you track the rise and fall of this kind of argument, it tends to coincide with left-wing political victories. I think, mean, you know, Biden, it's, it's Joe Biden. This is not <laughs> President Ibram Kendi. It's not President Robin DiAngelo, right? It's the guy who wrote the, the crime bill in the 90s, right? He's not exactly a threatening deviation from the center. That victory of the Democratic Party, I think has galvanized a lot of this talk, right? The sense that Trump was the last chance to defeat the left's cultural power. And I also, you know, think and uh, we can get into this if you want, but I think that the portrayal of the illiberal left's existence uh, and its dominance on the broader left has been vastly overstated by centrist commentators who see people like Kendi and D'Angelo as speaking for a lot more people than they actually do. And certainly, is having much more influence inside the Democratic Party than they actually do. Yeah, I, I think I think that is a, a very fair point, and I, I do think that one of the dangers with being very online, right, very, very much on Twitter, um, uh, for example, is is that um, you can get a really distorted view for what is actually moving where the Democratic base is, which has always been, or at least lately has been, much more diverse and, and sort of heterogeneous than the Republican base, which which may account for the kind of the, the fact that the Democratic Party is a more moderate party than the Republicans, um, just because it has to appeal to more to more constituents. And, and so with that, I, I do want to close our conversation by talking about the impact of this move on the, the right, on actual kind of American politics. And I want to frame it in this way. Let's concede, I mean, I certainly believe this to be the case, and let's just concede that that what is happening on the, the right, the illiberal right, is it's a very bad look, right? It's very bad when Tucker Carlson praises Viktor Orban in Budapest. It's it's not good when Rod Dreher writes, you know, fawning portrayals of Hungarian culture. It's not healthy, and, and in many ways, it's quite immoral. That being said, how concerned should we be, right? Let's say kind of we generally in the kind of big amorphous center of uh, American politics. Now, how should how concerned should we be about the implications of this, right? And the reason I ask is, you know, again, Hungary is not like the United States, right? It right. is a country of 10 million people. It is relatively ethnically homogenous, right? Perhaps less so than Orban would like, um, but still much more so than the United States is. You know, if it was a state, it'd be the size of Michigan, right? It's not clear to me that any of the quote unquote lessons that the the right is taking from Hungary could actually apply to the United States, a diverse continental sized country of over 300 million people, the much more heterogeneous culture, um, a much more um, decentralized and gridlocked political system. And so, again, I, I don't doubt that this authoritarian right can do a lot of damage, um, but I do wonder 
how much we should fear that Hungarian-style competitive authoritarianism could actually work in the United States because someone would have to actually implement it, right? And, and that someone would be the Republican Party. And so I, I'm curious, you know, do, do you think I'm being too Pollyannish about this? And, and if so, where do you think that the Republican Party can take the lessons of uh, Orbanism or, you know, Portugal under Salazar and actually implement them, you know, in the foreseeable five or 10 years? Yeah, I've argued that in print that the Republican Party has already gone down this road, and they didn't need any prompting from Budapest in order to do it, right? There's a, an all-American tradition of competitive authoritarianism at home. It's, it's called Jim Crow, right? That's that's what the system was designed to do in part, not just to enforce a racial hierarchy, but also to ensure that at the local level in the South, the Democratic Party would reign unchallenged. And that's what it did. It was quite effective at that task. And now the GOP has embraced not identical tactics, but similar ones. And some of them also have parallels in Hungary. Extreme gerrymandering, for example, is something that the two parties have in common. It is not possible in the U.S. to ape every element of the Hungarian model for all the reasons you suggested and more. For example, decentralized political systems and and state-level election administration means you can't just take over the national electoral apparatus and be like, there, we've, we've seized control of elections, so we can now rig them in our favor. But it presents new and different ways for rigging the political system. And you've seen that at the state level increasingly over the last decade, right after 2010, uh, the rise of voter ID laws and state-level gerrymandering. You saw after Democrats won governorships in Wisconsin and North Carolina, Republicans stripped the governors of the power. Republicans who controlled the state legislature, again, through gerrymandering, uh, stripped the governor of their powers and give it to the legislature. In the recent Georgia election law, you saw a provision that allows the legislature to seize control of the ballot counting process in counties that they deemed to have violations of state election rules, which in effect allows them, the Republican-controlled legislature, to count the votes or appoint someone to count the votes more precisely in democratic-leaving areas. Right, All these are ways of suborning the electoral system at the state and local level to create what uh, one academic provocatively termed laboratories of authoritarianism, uh, and that state State-level innovations are diffusing from one state to the other for Republicans to maintain control in a very Hungary-like way of keeping a democratic facade while making the system less and less competitive and less and less fair. I think now, honestly, it's fair to say in the wake of the embrace of the, of the big lie and all of these different state-level voting restrictions that this kind of competitive authoritarianism is mainstream in the GOP right now. That trying to get there and trying to turn America into something like that is, is just the reality of what the party is thinking and where it's at. And that, again, doesn't mean that the Hungary stuff is a direct warning for the U.S. in the sense that, like, we're going to get our own Orban who's going to nationally destroy democracy in the same way. What it does show or reveal, or it ought to, is that, like, every pro-democracy siren should be flashing red right now because there are ways of creating a competitive authoritarian system that aren't exactly like Hungary's. But the fact that one that is more naked than what is happening in the states right now is becoming celebrated on the right, to me, indicates that when the stakes are much higher, right, you know, it's control of our own political system, not just admiring a foreign one. And, you know, there's a, a, a much more hated left, the American left, to be beaten. 
the people on the right are going to be okay with this increasing move down an anti-democratic path that's happening at the state level and as Trump initiated in many ways at the national level. And so, yeah, I think we are locked in a kind of existential struggle for democracy inside the United States with Republicans pushing us very much in the wrong direction. And I hate saying that because I don't particularly like affiliating with a partisan position, right? I don't see myself as like, yay, Democratic Party. I have lots of problems with the Democratic Party too. But right now, I think the most honest analysis of American politics is is an authoritarian party, or at least one that has in certain ways embraced authoritarian tactics for holding power. And if you care about democracy, you need to figure out a way to solve that problem. And so all this Hungary episode, more than anything else, if you're looking at the US, should help us understand how dire our situation is. And, you know, that it can happen here and in some ways is sort of happening right now. Well, I, I think that on that cheerful note, <laughs> uh, I think we'll I think we'll have to wrap it up. Um thank you, Zach, so much. This is a really important conversation. And um, I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking with me about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to deliver bad news anywhere, anytime, Alan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate this podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Hamza Shittu of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer. And Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.